You are listening to Sunday Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and executive director of the Institute and your host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. O Lord and Master of my life, deliver me from the spirit of slothfulness, meddling, ambition, and vain talk. But bestow upon me your servant the spirit of purity, humility, patience, and love. Yes, O Lord and King, grant that I may be aware of my own sins and not to judge my brother, for thou art blessed unto ages of ages. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Hello, Father. Hello, Annie. Happy, so good. happy Lent. That's a, one of the famous prayers of St. Ephraim that is prayed during the Lenten season in uh, the Byzantine East. So I thought I would share that with you all today. It's a beautiful prayer. Good one to uh, kick off our Lenten journey together. Exactly. It's our first Sunday of Lent and that we share the Byzantine East and the uh, Latin West shares in common. This is the first Sunday. Although, although we began our Lent last Sunday evening. So we don't have Ash Wednesday, the same, our calendar is different. We begin with a service called Forgiveness Vespers on Sunday evening. That was Super Bowl Sunday this year. Oh, wow. And uh, ask mutual forgiveness of one another in the church and then make a prostration to each person in the church and asking for forgiveness. Very beautiful way to begin Lent. Yeah. But Sunday evening, biblically speaking, is Monday morning. And therefore, this is still the first Sunday of Lent for us. Last Sunday was not a Lenten Sunday. It was our final preparation. So here we are all together on the first Sunday of Lent, and we have some soul-winning biblical texts. Yeah, we do. It is one of the tragedies of the new lectionary that I don't get more readings from Genesis because <laughs> <I mean, laughs> in the old lectionary, you didn't get any readings from Genesis, at least in the uh, in the mass readings. But no, I just love Genesis. One of my favorites. We can go back. I did a series of, of talks on the book of Genesis probably close to 20 years ago now at the IACC. Before and, I uh, was born, basically. Before you were born. No, not, we haven't been around for 20 years, but it's been it's been a long time. And uh, and that was a wonderful uh, series. You can go back and listen to that if you want. Here we are. Give us our biblical passages. Annie yes. Mitchell. Well, as you said, we are in the book of Genesis for this first Sunday of Lent, chapter 9, verses 8 through 15. Mm -hmm. The responsorial psalm is taken from Psalm 25. The gospel, we're kind of rewinding in the book of Mark. We're in Mark chapter 1, verses 12 through 15 this weekend. And the epistle is the first letter of St. Peter, chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. We are rewinding, we aren't we? Look at that. Yeah. And it's because, of course, Just it's the beginning bit. of Lent. And right. so we had to go back and grab this little piece that I guess we, did we skip over that? I guess we did. Yeah, I think we, we sort of did. Yeah, we skipped over these couple of verses, but someone was I mean, looking ahead. We have not yet left the first chapter of Mark. And uh, we've only scratched the, the surface of the first people. chapter of Mark. It's yeah. like, there's a lot there. Yeah. There's a lot there. Yeah, it's pretty intense. So here we are. Yes, Genesis chapter 9. First book of the Bible, everyone. You yeah, can if you can't find, find the book of Genesis, we have problems. Yeah. Genesis chapter 9, verse 8 through 15. Yep. You ready to go? Mm-hmm. Yep. Here okay. We go. Here we go. God said to Noah and to his sons with him, See, I am now establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, all the birds and the various tame and wild animals that were with you and came out of the ark. I will establish my covenant with you that never again shall all bodily creatures be destroyed by the waters of a flood. There shall not be another flood to devastate the earth. God added, this is the sign that I am giving for all ages to come of the covenant between me and you and every living creature with you. I set my bow in the clouds to serve as a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. 
when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow appears in the clouds, I will recall the covenant I have made between me and you and all living beings so that the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all mortal beings. Mm. Wow. Okay. So talk about dropping in in the middle of the story here. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden we just have this covenant with Noah. So, I mean, obviously this is coming after the flood. He's referring to the flood, but why did the flood happen in the first place? I knew it. I knew it. We couldn't keep focused on the biblical text. You know what I mean? That's our problem with SGR is we have so much fun in here. It's like a free for all. And you're well, here in the biblical context, you're, you're, right? Yeah, but I'm just saying it's just too much fun. Like we could spend yeah. we could spend <laughs> so much time together just yeah. working on the flood text that uh that this is part of, right? And that's is that's the part of the tragedy. Okay, but, I'm sorry. But, I but, no, did I ask too wide-ranging of a question? It's, it's good. It's good. Because oh, okay. all of us in here gathered together for SGR want to just get in here and roll around. I want to jump in the waters of the flood and swim around. Well, well maybe I dead bodies everywhere but, floating. Yeah, exactly. Floating around. That's kind of disgusting. <laughs> okay, here we are. So so you're saying, tell us, what did you say? A little bit about the flood? Yeah, well, yeah. just why the flood happened. Well, like, because why of, did God decide he's going to destroy all mortal bodies? Because they're sinners. Yeah. All this that that took place was uh, given to us in chapter six, which we're going to go way far afield here. Okay, when men began, you can ask me a question: Why the flood happened? When men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of men were fair. They took to wife such of them as they chose. Then the Lord said, "My spirit shall not abide man forever, for his flesh, but in his days shall a hundred be hundred and twenty, and the Nephilim were on the earth. I'm not commenting on the Nephilim right now. Verse five, the Lord saw that wickedness of men was great on the earth, and every imagination, the thoughts of the heart were only evil continually. Okay, so there you go. Things are getting going from bad to worse, right? So we have this is all part, and then you have to go back to Genesis chapter three, right? The whole devolving of the created order has taken place, right? Man has fallen further and further away from the mountain of God. Yeah, mm -hmm. the in the book of Genesis, the the story of the Garden of Eden is given to us as a as a mountain because we know rivers flowed out of the garden to water. Yeah, in chapter two, verse ten. The rivers flowed out of Eden, and therefore the fathers of the church tell us, well, that Eden we know to be a mountain. And that mountain then figures into the story because as Adam and Eve are cast out of paradise, they end up where geographically? Down the slope, right? They're sliding into East. Gomorrah, right? They're sliding down. And they're and they're and they're as the further they go down, the further they get away from the garden, right? And they end up mm -hmm. down in the darkness of the valley. Um, and uh much to say about that regarding the uh Salve Regina. By the way, any of you that love the Virgin Mary and love the Salve Regina, I would recommend that you meditate upon this idea, the geography of the Garden of Eden. At the top is the garden, and in the garden is the tree of life from mm -hmm. which which bears the life of God, yeah? And now sing to the Virgin Mary, the new tree of life. Go study the Salve Regina, okay? Wow. You do yourselves a little favor there, and now wow. you're going to be like, wow, that's awesome stuff. But we're leaving that aside, so we're too far afield now, Annie, because they slid to Genesis chapter 6 until things were so bad, so bad, that this this movement of the sons the sons of god and the daughters of men this this pulling further away from paradise the sons of god of course in chapter 6 some have said oh the um verse 2 the sons of god saw the daughters of men oh see these are angels the sons of god and they had and this is the people will say this okay that they had intercourse with women and then somehow the Nephilim were born, which are these kind of like angel people. Hmm. I can't buy that. No, no, no. St. Ephraim says very clearly what's going on here. And that is that to be a son of God is to be in the image and likeness of God. And man, uh, and, and as, as Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden, that the son that Abel and eventually Seth, right? Seth mm -hmm. in chapter 5, 
verses 1 and following, Seth, who replaces Abel, the righteous descendants of Adam, um, remain close to the garden, right? Adam is kicked out of the garden, and the tradition is he died right there on the edge of the garden. Uh, yeah. More about the crucifixion outside the walls of Jerusalem another time. But there they remain close. But now their descendants begin coming down the mountain and marrying those that are down in the valley and and having relations with them. And now the the family of God is being compromised. Hmm. And when the family of God begins to be compromised, the Lord intervenes for the sake of the salvation of the world, which the family of God is meant to be the light of, right? Um, and this is why the intervention of the flood happens. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So then I talk can't wait about to hear what you're going to ask next. Yeah. I have no idea. Well, what you're going to say. Why, why did God decide that <laughs> Noah was the one that was going to survive and be oh, yeah. one in well, covenant a, with there's him? There's a nice theme here that goes through, through Genesis. Um, that is the, the idea of walking with God. You'll remember that in Genesis chapter three, verse eight, Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking the garden in the cool mm -hmm. of the day. And right. they, and what did they do, they hid themselves in fear, right? Yeah. And so to walk with God or to hide from him is a theme in the book of Genesis. And we see that that picked up here in chapter five, verse 21, regarding one of the righteous sons or descendants of Adam through Seth. Verse 21, Enoch lived 65 years. He became the father of Methuselah. Enoch walked with God. Nice. And then he ends up being assumed into heaven. You can write a little note in your Bibles uh, right there at the uh, verse 24. You can put a little note to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5, which is going to tell you what happened to Enoch. But don't turn there right now because we're going to lose, have not enough time. But here we go in, in verse 9. These are the generation of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Good. So there's this theme of walking with God as a sign of covenant union. Of course, one who is in covenant union with God is one who does not die because God's life is in him. Yeah. Which is why Enoch is taken up into heaven and Noah is preserved through the through the flood, right? Now I say, wait a minute, but Noah died. You know, take it easy. Let's talk from a biblical standpoint, from a biblical language standpoint, and ideas of, of, of themes and concepts is the one who has God's life dwelling in within him is preserved from death. And so why Noah? Well, because he walked with God, right? And one who walks with God, then death is is, is cast out, right? He's preserved from all of that. And uh, yeah, there's your answer. Okay, so this is a new covenant that he has. Did it replace, did it replace a other covenant? So I, like, I don't know where you're going to go after here because there's a lot of, of, of things floating around out there into the various covenants of the Old Testament. You have the Mosaic covenant, the Levitical covenant, right? Mm -hmm. um, you've got Davidic covenant. So are know, they like replacements? Are they renewals? So, I no, mean, so, like so I, I actually, I, re I reject all of this. So some, some will say that there are various covenants in the Old Testament. And certainly we can talk in those terms the covenant which God established with Abraham, the covenant which God established with, with David. However, we don't want to go too far with it because we need to realize that this is all the representation of one reality. A covenant, what is a covenant, Annie? It's like um, like becoming a family, becoming one. Okay, but let's talk, talk to me in real like basic terms come on you're gonna go down like a the car contract you're gonna go to the is car dealership you you're gonna make a contract with somebody what is a contract an agreement an agreement what is an agreement well an agreement would be you are i'm trying to think of another word to agree um describe it well it's like you make a trend almost like a transaction where it's like okay i if you're talking about a car I go down to the car dealership, I give him my money, and he gives me a car. Yes, okay. But and now you're in agreement about this thing, though, right? But what is that agreement part of it? Like, you know what I mean? What is it for man to be in agreement with another man? Um, to be of, to have the same 
goal to have the same mind. Yeah, that's it. That's it. To be of like mind, right? To be a one regarding this thing, right? And that's yeah. how the that's how the exchange happens, right? I I give you this amount of money, you give me the car. Now you we have both agree we're of one mind. The car is mine, the money is yours, right? Yeah. We're of one mind about that thing. That's what the agreement is. A covenant is that on super terms in which two persons enter into a relationship with each other and 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 kind of form a bond. Kind of the marriage covenant, the two become one flesh, right? Yeah. Um, they're one in relationship to the thing they're covenanting. Yeah. And here we're talking about covenanting of persons. They become, they become one. Um, and so we talk about the covenant with God. Well, God offers himself to us, right? I've talked about this many times in Genesis chapter one, about that repetition of God saw that it was good to see something as good is to see it as desirable. And desire is the most fundamental movement of the will. When I desire not things like like water, but persons, I, I I call that desire, that movement of the will, love. And love is the giving of my life to the other, right? It's the joining the two becoming one so that what is yours becomes mine, what mine becomes yours, much like the car and the cash, right? Sure, but yeah. now, but we're talking about these two persons now become one. And that's what the covenant is. When God offers himself to us in, in creating the world, he pours out his life to us. And literally in chapter two, uh, or maybe figuratively, verse seven, then the Lord God formed a man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, right? And so God literally blows his life into us and makes us alive. And so, and so this covenant, which God makes with us so that the two are now one, God never changes. It's us. We break the covenant, right? We walk away. We are unfaithful, but the Lord never changes. He constantly offered himself to us. And that happens throughout all of salvation history until the fullness of this happens when he literally pours out his life to us in his son sure. and takes our human nature to himself. That's the new covenant. The two become one. God and man join together again in the eternal person of the word. So then the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with with uh with Noah, the covenant with David or the covenant with Moses is all the same reality of God offering himself and man responding to that offer and entering back into relationship with God. Okay. Can you what ask me this? a question? Like, can you talk is... a little bit about the flood itself? Sure. Can okay. you talk a little bit about the I flood do. itself? I just want to say, want to. I just want to say a little bit about it. And that is that the whole flood narrative is a beautiful picture. And unless we read it as a beautiful picture, we miss the whole thing. So in the ancient world, important texts were written with poetic structure involved in, in, in place so that your eye or the listener would be able to remember the story, but also be able to focus on the story. But because we've lost the tools, we don't actually get that anymore. So for example, the seven day structure of Genesis, right? We talked about that before and its importance regarding the covenant. But here, the flood is actually written in what we call a chiastic structure using the Greek letter key, the X letter in the in the Greek alphabet, in which the whole story is written. And this is going to blow some people's mind that are actually listening. Uh, and the whole story is written in a in a um, in a structure, so that the first idea or phrase is repeated at the end of the story. Okay. And every single phrase or idea in progression is also progressed from the bottom of the story and from the top of the story down like this until really? they meet in the middle, which is always the most important point. You know this, don't you, Annie? Yes. Yeah. Called well, a chiastic yeah. structure. The Gospel of John, chapter one, or the first, the, 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 the prologue of John is written in this way. Okay. John writes in a chiastic structure. So Genesis is uh, Moses writing Genesis does this in the in the flood narrative in probably the most complicated chiastic structure in the entire Bible. Um, and that reaches all the way from Genesis chapter six, verse nine. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham and Japheth. Mm -hmm. Turn with me to chapter 9, verse 18. 
The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah. Do you see that? You see the repetition there? Yep. This continues to repeat throughout the story. I'll give you just a few a few pieces to see it. Okay. For example, chapter 6, verse 17. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the earth, which is the breath of life, in which is the breath of life from under the heavens. Turn with me to chapter chapter 9, verse 11. Verse 11. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall the flesh be cut off from the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Okay, so there's the opposite of what you just saw in chapter 6, verse 17, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I could go on and on like this. Verse eight, Chapter 6, verse 18 but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark. Chapter nine, verse eight. Then God said to Noah, to his sons, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your descendants after you. Okay. Do you see this? So yeah. these themes are going back and forth, back and forth, all the way up, all the way up, all the way up. Okay, until they so meet what's the middle? The very what's middle, the main most point? important part of the flood narrative is um, chapter eight, verse one. Well, it's just your verse one actually isn't isn't exactly identified there, at least in my Bible. But God remembered Noah. See that? Oh, okay. But God remembered Noah. When when talking, it's not like God forgot Noah. Okay, it's a biblical way of saying that God is going to act toward his toward his son. Right? He's going to renew the covenant. Yeah. God mm -hmm. remembered Noah, and that the two are joined together in this moment. And when this happens, all the the movement of destruction is now reversed and at chapter eight the beginning of chapter eight the whole thing swings and now begins the rebuilding process which is the second thing i need to mention regarding the whole flood narrative and it's related to the kinetic structure that the whole flood narrative is a de decreation and recreation story so that what happened in genesis chapter one is reversed in genesis chapter six and seven wow. and then it's redone in chapter eight and nine okay what do i mean by that in the beginning um well go back to genesis chapter one verse one in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep the spirit of god was hovering over the face of the waters and then god spoke and light came in right and yeah. then uh, God separated the waters and the earth appeared, right? And then man was standing on the earth, yeah, right? Oh, created. Now, all of that is going to reverse so that now the water is going to come back over the face of the, of the earth again. The waters above the earth and the waters below the earth, the rain is going to become so torrential that the two are going to become one. Wow. Okay, the sun is going to be blotted out the light that God spoke into the world in the beginning is now darkened. Darkness is upon the face of the of the earth or the waters, right? So the and and then the breath of life that God breathed in them in is now snuffed out. So you're going to read chapter um, six and seven in that way. You'll see how Moses is writing to show you that everything that God did in the beginning is now reversed until. You're back there at the at the at the at the um, culmination of this whole thing, just before chapter eight, and you're back to Genesis chapter one verse one. There's total, it's it's wow. tohu wabohu. There's formless and void. There's ah right. You can't yeah. see the earth, and now the reverse takes place. And what what do we what do we see now hovering over the waters? What's the first? thing that hovers over the waters for noah a dove no 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 chapter 8 verse 6 at the end of 40 days noah opened the window of the ark which he had made and sent forth a raven oh yeah a raven why a raven look at chapter 1 verse 2 the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the waters Right, so the raven, the colors of raven is black, goes hovering over the waters, right? And then what comes out next is the spirit of God, right? Which in going back to Genesis chapter one, 
And the spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. St. Jerome says, don't think that the flood waters subsided on their own. No. When, when Noah sent forth the raven, it was God sending the spirit of God, which cast the darkness out and chased the raven away. Wow. Yeah. And at that moment, the spirit of God then hovers over the face of the waters and the waters begin to recede, not by their own power, but by the spirit of God, right? The wind, the, the same word in, in Hebrew, ruach and spirit and wind. You can translate it both ways, spirit and wind. So it's the, sp- yeah. the wind, which is over the face of the waters in the beginning is now the, is now hovering in the dove over the waters, the waters and yeah. recede and man comes and stands on the earth again. And notice what, it, what, what he does. The first thing he does, he chapter eight, verse 20, then Noah built an altar to the Lord, right? He sacrifices to God. He does what Adam and he failed to do to worship the Lord. So this whole, and, and, and those that, by the way, that end up down in the valley, right? Not worshiping God. And so now there's this whole thing. Now Noah comes forth from the ark with his sons. What's the first thing he does after he worships God? The first thing he does is given to us in chapter 9, verse 20. Noah was the first tiller of the soil. What kind of person tills the soil? A farmer, a gardener. Gardener. One, one who tills and keeps yeah super cool okay and he plants a vineyard he plants a garden yes and he eats from the garden and he falls into sin chapter 9 verse 20 and following and his sin redounds upon his children hello adam Wow. You see, the whole story is given to us as a repetition of Genesis chapter one as a reversal and a redual, if you will. Um, and uh, and there we are. Okay. I told you this is why Genesis is so fun. This is why the story of the flood is so awesome. It's really great. Um, and uh, and I wish we had more time to study it. I mean, it is really great, but what does all of this have to do with Lent? Ah, good question, because look at our text now. I have two answers uh, for you on that. And it's, you know, sometimes the lectionary, you think, why are they putting this text with this now? And we're going to look at the temptation of Jesus in the desert in a minute, right? And so I think I have two answers I'd like to give to that. First is the context here in Genesis of this text, which is all about eating. Yeah. Look at chapter nine, verse one. And God blessed Noah and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Hmm, I heard that before. Fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the air, upon every thing that creeps on the ground and all the flesh of the sea. Into your hands they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives will be food for you. And as I have given you green plants, I give you everything. Only you shall not eat flesh with this life in it, that is with blood in it, right? Because that, why? Why? Because the ancient pagan peoples believed if they drank the blood of the animal, they would get its life force. And so to drive paganism out, there was one of the Levitical laws that they could not do this. Remember Genesis is written by Moses. Tradition tells us written by Moses. Jesus tells us that Moses wrote. And therefore, Genesis was written during the time of the Exodus when Moses lived. Yeah. Not making stuff up, but telling the story in such a way that it's effective for his people who are dealing with full-blown Egyptian paganism. Paganism. And therefore, Genesis is what I call an apologetic catechesis. Hmm. That's why Moses wrote it. It's an apologetic catechesis, and it ought to be written that re, should be read that way. That is for Israel, who has left Egypt and is now traveling to the Holy Land, telling about God's faithfulness and warning about man's unfaithfulness. And here we find one of the dietary laws of the Old Testament. And it's now with Noah's, after he comes out, he can now eat animals. Before that, they were vegetarians. Hmm. Yeah. And so why is this given to us? Well, I have another answer for that, a second answer, but at least initially in context, this passage that we're reading, Genesis chapter 9, verse 8 and following, should be read from verse 1 and following, which is that this is all about um, the eating of flesh um, for the first time, um, which is part of 
the fall of man. Originally, originally, man was vegetarian in the Garden of Eden, right? As we know in Genesis chapter chapter 1, verse 29 and following, and God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed, which is upon the face of the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. So now, now man has fallen away in a sense. So even in the recreation of the post flood, we still have a decreation aspect taking place or a falling aspect taking place, which will be exacerbated in chapter nine, verse 20, when Noah falls into sin again. But my second answer is this, and that is from a spiritual standpoint, the church fathers tell us that the waters of the flood represent more than water. They mm -hmm. represent the passions of this life. And then the waters become not life-giving, but a tomb in which sinful man dies and is drowned and is buried. And those waves are not still. They are, they are, they are brashing against the sides of the boat, the boat being a symbol of the church, trying, if you will, to capsize the ship. Noah's Ark, the safety of God's people, becomes the, the house of God, if you will, in which the family of God is dwelling. It is the garden in microcosm. And the waters, the passions of this world then are, are taking mankind and drowning mankind in the waters. And only Noah's, Noah's family survives and has an opportunity for salvation. And so uh, applying this theme then from the church fathers to our Lenten season, I think we do well to meditate upon the passions of this life as being destructive to us, but also that God's grace has been given to us. Uh, through the incarnation of Christ, and no longer is man to be totally consumed by the passions of this world and unable to be saved, um, but has the opportunity, the constant opportunity for repentance, the constant opportunity for a restoration of relationship. No longer the doors closed and the, the gate of paradise is closed, but it remains open always, even to sinners. And here I'm going to take a, a, a line from Pope Francis, right? The, the church remains always open. It's a hospital to the sinner, yeah? But hospitals seek to get people better and never leaves them wallowing in their passions in death, the death throes of sin. Um, so there, Annie, is my application to this uh, this thing. I will add one last thing if it's okay, unless you, do you have other questions? I wanted to mention one thing about this. No, please go. And that is um, a phrase which is repeated here, which you should know quite well. In verse 8 and verse 9, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your descendants after you. Verse 12, And the Lord said, This is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you. Verse 13, I set my bow in the clouds, and I shall be, it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. This phrase is repeated multiple times. Come down to verse 16. When the bow is in the clouds, I will look up, I will look upon it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature. Okay. Verse 17, God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh. This is, a, this is covenant language. And I point this out to you only so that you have some biblical tools in your tool belt when you're reading the Bible to be able to catch this phrase, which is Hebrew, um, a Hebrew idiom, if you will, for covenant union. And I'll just, I'll just flip to one passage, which is, becomes very important for, mm -hmm. for us in John chapter 2. John chapter 2. Um, which is the feast of the, the wedding at Cana, right? Mm -hmm. Chapter 2, verse 3. John chapter 2, verse 3. When the wine failed, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, O woman, ha what have you to do with me? Now, that doesn't sound like the same type of language, unless you go back to the original text in Hebrew, well, in Greek, and Jerome picks this up in the Latin, in the Vulgate, uh, which has this exact structure. What is this to you and to me? Or what is this between you and me is a much better translation of this text of John. 
than mm. what appears to come across, which is Jesus rejecting his mother. And why do we know that uh, th th that is the intent of John in writing this text? Well, look what happens in the ne very next verse, right? Jesus says to her, a woman, what have you to do with me? My hour's not yet up. In other words, if we're reading this as normally read, get out of here, Mary. At a time, what is this? What, what or some of your Bibles? What concern is that of mine? Right now, does that? I want all you Catholics to say, does that sound like Jesus talking to the Virgin Mary? I don't think so. Listen to what the next verse says. His mother said, or turned to the servants and said, "Do what he tells you." In other words. Mary has heard something very different than a rejection. Yep. Mary has apparently heard Jesus saying to her something very positive. And therefore, she tones the servants and says, go. Right? And the only, re the only way Mary could have possibly done what she did is if she heard him say, in other words, covenant, yes, I will at this moment establish this relationship between us, right? I will do what you're asking. Yeah? yeah. Also in Genesis, and I'll leave off after this, just very quick comment here at the end here. Um, and that's in Genesis chapter, chapter 23, verse 10 and following. When Abraham purchases a piece of land from Ephron the Hittite, um, in which we get that same language that comes up in verse four, verse 15, in which it appears, and I'm going to just say it right now because we got to move on. That's just, you go read it on your own if you're interested in this. You go read that section on your own. And this is what, what Abraham says to Ephron, says, I'm going to pay you for it. And Ephron says, what is that between me? What is what is this money between me and you, old buddy? It sounds like he, Ephron's saying, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. But as soon as he says those words between me and you, he pays him the money, which means that that's a Hebrew idiom for agreement, yeah, and not a rejection of the person as it would appear in our English translation of this text here in Genesis, and then apply that to John, and you get it all on the way that came to business comes alive for wow. you, okay? That's a, that's a lot more than I need to say about Genesis chapter 9, so we need to move on. Yeah, we definitely do. We got to get... We got to get moving into the gospel, but let's yep. take a look at the responsorial psalm here, Psalm 25, and uh, the response here, your ways, O Lord, are love and truth to those who keep your covenant. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would, I would encourage everyone to be meditating upon right here. What is love? What is truth? And why are his ways love and truth, those who keep his covenant. Those who keep his covenant are whom, right? What is it? What is a person who keeps his covenant? One who is? Part of the family. One with yeah, him. Made one with him. Yeah, exactly. And now his ways become my ways. Mm. Yeah. Um, and then I realize that his ways are always, are always life-giving. Yeah. And always in conformity with the th way things really are. That is what truth is, right? The conformity of my mind with the way things really are. And then his ways open life to me. And when I am not in covenant with him, like those at the time of the flood, his ways become death to me. Yeah. I am closed out of the salvation which is offered to me. And now I find myself in darkness, not because God wanted me to be there, but because I chose to be there. Yeah. So now I seek communion with God. And that's coming this Sunday, receiving communion. This is it. Come forward, receive communion. Realize this communion is a communion. Yeah. A union of two, making two, one. And once that is like this, then his ways become mine. And now, now Lent becomes a time of joy in which his ways, the ways of the Lord, become love and truth to me. And I'm freed of all the baggage of this world that has been weighing me down. And I begin to walk in his ways again. Hello, Genesis. Noah walked in his ways, right? And I'm restored to walk in the cool of the day with, with the Lord again. That's awesome. Okay, well, let's 
walk in the heat of the day with Jesus in the desert. Listen to St. Augustine on this. God will teach his ways not to those who want to run on ahead as if they could rule themselves better than he can, but to those who do not strut about with their heads in the air or dig in their heels when his easy with when his easy yoke and light burden are set on them. There it is. Don't dig in your heels. That's it. The journey, my brothers, is here. We've begun. Some maybe have not begun. But you're invited now to begin that journey towards Pascha, towards the light of the resurrection. Don't dig in your heels. Yeah. Walk along this way that is ahead and it will become, it will become a light yoke the more you're covenanted to him. Mm. Yeah. And then joy will enter in. Okay, Annie. Okay, well, let's walk into the desert now. Okay. Sound good? Yes. Mark, Mark chapter one. Chapter one, verses 12 through 15. All right. I got to turn there. Give me a second now. All of you Bible thumpers out there, get out your Bibles. If you don't have your Bible out yet, forget about it. You're fired. Out you go. Mark chapter one. Lenten verse... resolution. Have that Bible open. That's right. That's right. Verse chapter 12. one, verse 12. You might as well start with verse one when you're reading this at home. But here we go. Verse 12. And All right. The Spirit drove Jesus out into the desert, and he remained in the desert for 40 days, tempted by Satan. He was among wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. After John had been arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. This is the time of fulfillment. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Short and sweet. Yeah, thanks be to God. <laughs> <laughs> Where is this happening, Father? Okay, well, geography is always good. So we're going to go and pull up the map here. For the first map we're pulling up, you can see the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, and the Dead Sea. The big picture here, Jerusalem. And then we're going to focus in here on Jericho. And the Jordan River right here where Jericho is located is the traditional spot just above the Dead Sea where the baptism of Jesus took place. So you can visit the spot today. It's the same spot, by the way, that Joshua carried the Ark of the Covenant or the Jews, the you know Israel carried the Ark of the Covenant across when they conquered the Holy Land. So yeah, so it's there and right next to Jericho. Um, I'm, I guess I didn't, I, I'm thinking, here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking context, which is the baptism of the Lord. And, uh, and I'm describing that spot. So yes. Okay. Jesus is baptized in the Jordan, this spot I'm describing right here. But now why is this important regarding Jericho? Because the temptation of the desert took place right here. And we know because there's been a monastery here from early Christian days to mark the, the location monks and, and very serious ascetics would always go out to this desert area and live in prayer. So there's the monastery there on the cliffs. The monastery of the temptation is on the cliffs of Jericho. And you can see it. I'm pull up here on the screen. Isn't that crazy, Annie? Cool. Yeah, this is like cool. built right into the cliffs. It's pretty awesome. You can go visit that spot today. Nice. Okay. Obviously, this is a rather short version of Jesus's temptation yeah. in the desert here, Father. Um and we've been looking at the other Gospels as we've been going through Mark uh, slow and steady. Are there any details from the other Gospels that you would like to highlight to kind of illuminate what's happening here in the desert? You know, Annie, I, I don't I don't want to today. I don't want to do that. But I, I'll tell you what I do want to do is I want to share with you some insights from the church fathers regarding the temptation of the desert. That I think they're very helpful in calling sure. us back to this bigger context that we were looking at in Genesis, which is this idea of. Of, of recreation, uh, decreation and recreation, and the whole story of Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3 as being the, the paradigm through which uh, that all of salvation history should be seen and the work of Jesus Christ understood. Yeah? Nice. Okay. <laughs> Just as a flood of Noah was a, a, a decreation and recreation, so, and so we should read the gospel in multiple levels, not only seeing the historical political realm and all of that stuff and the healings and so forth, but also the fact that Jesus is not only the, the, the Messiah come to save the Jews from the Romans, but, but he is the Messiah come to restore Adam to the throne of God. And therefore, he goes to the Jordan River, being the God of creation, and reclaims 
the the the, the ancient waters reclaims uh uh, uh what do I want to say um not jurisdiction, but you know what I mean, whatever, sure. over the waters, reclaiming the identity waters. We talked about that before in the baptism, whenever God touches, he sanctifies. Similarly here, Jesus comes out of those waters, man, fully restored in the image and likeness of God. And immediately he gets himself hungry. Well, who's hungry in the story of salvation history, but Adam and Eve. Yes. And immediately who shows up on the scene? Satan, the serpent, right? So listen, listen to what uh, Theodore of Mopsuestia says. For since Adam met with luxury in paradise and through deception deteriorated to what is worse, it was necessary that the spirit lead Christ into the wilderness in order to enfeeble the devil's force by someone greater in strength. So he fasted 40 nights and 40 days. Okay, now this is where the whole thing for me, my head blows off because now you realize what Jesus is doing. It's not only what's being done to him. Jesus intentionally gets himself hungry because he knows that the devil has no self-control <laughs> and sees man just like he saw him at the beginning the only difference is that God already knows what this guy is going to do. And therefore, he sets a trap for the one who has entrapped mankind. Wow. And getting himself hungry, the devil comes out of his den. And now, God in the flesh will do what the flesh had formerly failed to do. Isn't that oh. it? And he's going to now restore us in this moment to paradise by refusing to fall as Adam and Eve had done. A reversal now of what took place in Genesis chapter three. That's, That's cool incredible. Stuff. Yeah. I mean, that is like super mind blowing. And it's so interesting too in Mark that you know, we go straight from being tempted, the angels minister to him, John gets arrested, and then Jesus goes to Galilee to preach the gospel of God. And he says, repent and believe in the gospel, which um, for, for those of us in, in the Roman uh, right, we, when, when we receive ashes on Ash Wednesday, that's one of the options that they'll say as oh, they nice. put the, the ashes is repent yeah. and believe in the gospel or you remember you are dust and to dust you shall return is is the right. other one that you'll hear but this idea of repent and believe in the gospel can you can you just talk about why that is such an important theme in lent and and i guess really like what is because the other thing that we hear all the time, you know, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, the three pillars of Lent. And I, I, I'm wondering if you can kind of link for us prayer, fasting, and almsgiving and this idea of repenting and believing in the gospel. I can do it very fast for you. Repentance rejects sin. How about that? Right? Sure. I, re I, I decide that I don't want that life anymore. Sin is always selfishness. It's me firstness. The opposite of sin is love. That is life giving. Yeah. So prayer, fasting, almsgiving does exactly this. Prayer pours out my life to God. Yeah. Fasting, fasting restores my relationship with the created order by saying, realizing that my life comes from God and the life of bread comes from God also, right? I do not live by bread alone, but by, I could say, but by bread through its gift of life from God. And when I detach it from that gift, it becomes death for me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So fasting restores the order of the relationship between God and the whole created order in relationship with me. 
Yeah. And almsgiving allows me to do to my brother what God has done for me. So now that the, the communion is restored between me and God, the image and likeness of God might be lived out. The one who has poured his life out to me now, I get to do for others. I get to live out. So it's the restoring of all of that. Yeah. Wow. That was, that was really fast and really cool. So, I mean, what would you, I guess I, I'm going to ask you to put on your, your homily hat here mm -hmm. for a moment, Father, with just a little Lenten encouragement as as we sure. do enter into the desert with Jesus. I certainly will, but I need to give you another quotation from Theodore of Heraclea. It says, the first Adam sinned by eating, Christ prevailed by self-control. Yeah. So again, calling us back to this idea that, that the fast that, that Lent, and this may be an in, in introductory way of uh, responding to you, Annie, is that uh, Lent begins to restore in us a paradisical state, which is why the church fathers encouraged us saying during this season, meat is not eaten because now we're going to go back to Genesis chapter one in which Adam and Eve ate of the trees, of the garden and things like that. And they were vegetarians before, before animals were given. So, um, so I would encourage all of our participants, Hey, the fast is serious business. If you've been giving up Snickers bars, well, I don't know what to say. You want to get serious about Christianity? It's serious business. Time to set aside the meat, set aside, set aside the dairy, the 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 eggs, the the wine, uh, all that stuff, and go to a vegetarian diet. Why not for forty days? Well, there's only forty days left now, so why not? There's the invitation. Okay. The epistle we're going to, to set aside right now for, I didn't ask you your permission to do that. Actually, I should have asked you. Is it okay if we set aside the epistle or you want to do the epistle? Yeah, no, I'm okay. That's fine. I'm going to go, Annie, I guess, you know, encouraged by you, I'm going to, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm sorry for our uh, St. Peter and his epistle today, which you can go and read because it talks about Noah's flood and our baptism, which is renewed in us during the time of Lent and leading up to, to, the Easter vigil and all of us renewing our baptism is an opportunity for a restoration for all of us of our baptismal identity. And so I encourage you to read first Peter chapter three, verse 18 through 22 on your own. And I'll give you one last. And that is you asked about the connection between the, the flood narrative or, or the, our text in Genesis and the, the temptation. And of course, there's the 40 days, right? The 40 right. days oh, yeah. of the Blood waters coming down and so forth like that in um in chapter seven of genesis you can go back and read and then this there's a lot of 40s in the old testament right all these preparations for encountering god moses is up on sinai for 40 days right the israel crosses the desert for 40 years right before they come into the presence of god in the holy land again all these things but i'm going to leave you today with a little special extra here at the icc Ooh. and that is a little reading for all of us. So may God bless you upon the journey of the fast. Uh, ask you for prayers for our ICC family, for all of us struggling together in a serious way. We might encounter the resurrected Lord. I'd ask you to consider, especially in our fasting, and maybe as we save a little bit of money during the, during Lent, I hope, that you, uh, that you consider the ICC and your charitable giving. We certainly could use your help. And appreciate all the benefactors that support us on a um, on a month by month basis uh, means all the difference in the world to us. Uh, and so, uh, with that, let me share with you a beautiful. Um, this is about a page and a half. So, if you got a little time, sit back um, and uh, and just enjoy these insights from Father Alexander Schmemann. He says, in the Orthodox teaching, sin is not only a transgression of a rule leading to punishment, it is always a mutilation of life given to us by God. It is for this reason that the story of the original sin is presented to us as an act of eating. For food is means of life. It is that which keeps us alive. But here lies the whole question. What does it mean to be alive? And what does life mean? For us today, this term has a primarily biological meaning. Life is precisely that which entirely depends on food and more generally on the physical world. But for the Holy Scripture and for Christian tradition, this life by bread alone is identified with death because it is mortal life. 
because death is a principle always at work in it. God, we are told, created no death. He is the giver of life. How then did life become mortal? Why is death and death alone the only absolute condition of that which exists? The church answers, because man rejected life as it was, was offered and given to him by God, and preferred a life depending not on God alone, but on bread alone. Not only did he disobey God for which he was punished, he changed the very relationship between himself and the world. To be sure, the world was given to him by God as food, as means of life. Yet life was meant to be communion with God. It had not only its end, but its full content in him. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The world and food were thus created as means of communion with God, and only if accepted for God's sake were to, to give life. In itself, food has no life and cannot give life. Only God has life and is life. If food it's, In food itself, God and not calories was the principle of life. Thus to eat, to be alive, to know God and be in communion with him were one and the same thing. The unfathomable tragedy of Adam is that he ate for its own sake. More than, that, more than that, he ate apart from God and in order to be independent of him. And if he did it, it, it is because he believed that food had life in itself and that he, by partaking of that food, could be like God. In other words, have life in himself. To put it very simply, he believed in food, whereas the only object of belief and faith of faith is de of dependence is God and God alone. World, food, became his gods, the source of principle, the source and principles of his life. He became their slave. Adam, in Hebrew means man. It is my name, our common name. Man is still Adam, still the slave of food. He may claim that he believes in God, but God is not his life his food, the all-embracing content of his existence. He may claim that he receives his life from God, but he doesn't live in God and for God. His science, his experience, his self-consciousness are all built on the same principle by bread alone. We eat in order to be alive, but we are not alive in God. This is the sin of all sins. This is the verdict of death pronounced on our life. Christ is the new Adam. He comes to repair the damage inflicted on life by Adam, to restore man to true life, and thus he, be, he also begins with fasting. When he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he became hungry. Hunger is the, that state in which we realize our dependence on something else. When we urgently and essentially need food, showing thus that we have no life in ourselves, it is that limit beyond which I either die from starvation or, having satisfied my body, have again the impression of being alive. It is, in other words, the time when we face the ultimate question, on what does my life depend? And since the question is not an academic one, but is felt with my entire body, it is also the time of temptation. Satan came to Adam in paradise. He came to Christ in the desert. He came to two hungry men and said, Eat, for your hunger is the proof that you depend entirely on food, that your life is in food. And Adam believed and ate, but Christ rejected that temptation and said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by God. He refused to accept that cosmic lie which Satan imposed on the world, making that lie a self-evident truth not even debated anymore. The foundation of our entire worldview of science, medicine, and perhaps even of religion. By doing this, Christ restored that relationship between food, life, and God, which Adam broke, and which we still break every day. What then is fasting for us Christians? It is our entrance and participation into that experience of Christ himself, by which he liberates us from the total dependence on food, matter, and the world. By no means is our liberation a full one. Living still in a fallen world, in the world of the old Adam being part of it, we still depend on food. But just as our death through which we have we must pass, we still must pass, 
has become, by virtue of Christ's death, a passage into life. The food we eat and the life it sustains can be life in God and for God. Part of our food has already become food of immortality, the body and blood of Christ himself. But even the daily bread we receive from God can be in this life and in this world which that which strengthens us, our communion with God, rather than that which separates us from God. Yet it is only fasting that can perform that transformation, giving us the existential proof that our dependence on food and matter is not total, not absolute, that united to prayer, grace, and adoration, it can itself be spiritual. All this means that deeply understood, fasting is the only means by which man recovers his true spiritual nature. It is not a theoretical, but truly a practical challenge to the great liar who managed to convince us that we depend on bread alone and built all human knowledge, science, and existence on that lie. Fasting is the denunciation of that lie and also the proof that it is a lie. It is highly significant that it was while fasting that Christ met Satan, and that he said later that Satan cannot be overcome but by fasting and prayer. Fasting is the real fight against the devil, because it is the challenge to that one all-embracing law which makes him the prince of this world. Yet if one is hungry and then discovers that he can truly be independent of that hunger, not be destroyed by it, but just on the contrary can transform it into a source of spiritual power and victory, then nothing remains of that great lie in which we have been living since Adam. To Christ our God be glory both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Sunday Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.